In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. If you've been listening for a little while, you know that we strive to tell different breast cancer stories here. By different, I mean we reach past the diagnosis story, past the treatment story, to the realizations, to the little nuggets about living that emerge. It's less about what happened to each writer and more about what they did with what happened. And I believe that these are the stories that change lives. Today, we're going to hear a piece that I think illustrates this well. It's a memoir that includes a lot of sensuality mixed in with a lot of milestones and steps along a breast cancer experience that those of us behind the curtain here at Wildfire agree we haven't really heard before in a breast cancer story. And I can't wait for you to hear it as well. This is a good spot for me to tell you that if you have little ears about, this is a story that does include the mention of drugs and sex, so just so you know. My guest today is Emily Rao. Emily is an assistant professor of digital humanities at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and the editor of the Willa Cather Archive. Emily was diagnosed at 32 with stage 1 triple negative ductal breast cancer. She also discovered that she has the BRCA1 genetic mutation. She joins me today from Lincoln, where she enjoys playing Ultimate Frisbee, listening to Bruce Springsteen, and having IPAs with friends on patios in the sunshine. Hey, Emily. Welcome to The Burn. Hi, April. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We'll have to find out later on in the episode what you like to do when it's not sunny out in Lincoln, Nebraska. But for now, we are going to hear a story from you called I Might Be in Love with All of My Friends. And this comes from the 2023 Love and Intimacy issue of Wildfire. After you read, we will chat. Those of you listening, stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. All right, Emily, I'll let you take it away. All right. As you said, it's called I Might Be in Love with All My Friends. My hair was falling out and flying through the Nebraska wind. He came over and made love to me in a bed of that hair, pulling handfuls of it out of my head and dangling them from his fingertips. It was the first time we had been naked together in so long, and yet it felt like no time had passed as he kissed me where my newfound cancer was hopefully shrinking after the first round of chemo raced through my veins. The next day, my friend shaved my head with her boyfriend's clippers. The strands dropped into my hands and onto her living room floor as fast as the tears fell down my cheeks. I gathered the pieces and put them into a beer box I had just emptied, and as I drank the last IPA, I wept in her arms, an embrace that turned into kissing and touching, comfort blending with sensuality until we were naked together in her bed. 
With chemo ending and surgery looming, another friend drove me to Colorado and hiked with me to a mountaintop so he could take a photo of my breasts before I lost them forever. That same friend came to get me the day before my surgery, driving me the 60 miles to Omaha to meet my parents who had just arrived from New Jersey. He came with his girlfriend and they both helped me pack and waited patiently when I asked them to pull over so I could dry heave in a ditch. We got pizza and drank beer before she went on with her day. Then he took me back to his place where we did a little coke and drank gin and laid naked together in bed. He kissed my breasts and brought me to my last orgasm my nipples would be part of before driving me to the hotel where my parents were waiting. He came upstairs to meet them, even though I hadn't been honest with them about anything except that he was a special friend. They didn't know I was polyamorous or pansexual, that I was a little drunk and a little high, but only because that was the only way I could get myself into that room instead of driving west until I reached the ocean to escape what was coming the next day. I eventually did tell them that I was Polly and Pan, explaining what those words mean to me and causing a painful rift. My friend who shaved my head flew out two weeks later to help me drive back home to my friends who are sometimes lovers and who keep showing up for me. Once back in Nebraska, I listened to live music with friends wearing a low cut shirt that showed my scars for the first time. I forgot to eat dinner and drank a little too much, distracted by finding someone I had met a few days before my diagnosis, but never followed up with in the wake of my changing life. We had one of those intense conversations that feel like it lasts a lifetime until I leaned in and kissed them. We made out all over the bar and on the back patio before going back to their place. We talked about our dead moms, our polyamorous journeys, how bodies and identities are inextricable and yet sometimes disconnected. This was my first sexual encounter since my surgery, and I warned them that they would only find scars across my chest instead of breasts. I wore their necklace dangling down my chest while they kissed me and touched my scars. I felt so exhilaratingly vulnerable and visible, seen and accepted and loved, even if only temporarily. It was my first orgasm since surgery. I had tried myself, but I would have the impulse to touch my breasts, then remember they didn't exist anymore and be too devastated to continue. In the morning, we talked about our current and past partners, lying in bed, naked together until almost noon. I was surprised that the first time I had sex was with someone new, rather than the consistent partner from before surgery who took me to the mountains. But it also made sense that it was someone new, someone who didn't have a mental image of what I used to look like, but instead hit on me and chose me and sought me out as I am now, covered in scars with short silver hair on my head in the place of my waist-length dark blonde pre-chemo hair. A few days later, I got a very kind and sincere let's just be friends text, and I was disappointed and sad, but then grateful that I could even feel sadness and pain over something so common and normal that had nothing to do with the immense grief left in me by cancer. So what do love and intimacy during cancer look like for a single person living alone 1,500 miles from her family? It looked like a different friend showing up for every chemo infusion, meals dropped off on my porch, my friends playing spin the bottle just because I asked them to the weekend before I started chemo. I kissed almost everyone at that party, most during the game, but one in a kiddie pool and one in my bed after he drove me home. It looked like my best friend driving, me, driving with me out to the prairie the evening before she moved back to Virginia so we could dig a hole on top of a hill at the golden hour and bury my hair laying sage on top of the little grave. 
She draped her long, beautiful hair over my new, newly naked head, not knowing that she would be starting her own chemo journey only several weeks later. It looked like falling asleep in my friend's arms while watching Schitt's Creek after eating edibles. It looked like sleeping between my two friends in a hotel room after a wedding and sharing my bed with other friends after staying, to up, late, staying up too late and partying too hard and laughing and crying and dancing and painting ourselves with black light paint. And it looked like a tiny black cat who started to hate strangers less and who laid with me and on me and purred and made me laugh when all I wanted to do was cry, who licked my tears and needed my sore back and who still slept next to me even after I screamed and threw things and wept face down on the floor. It looked like my friend kissing my chest and face and hands and telling me I'm beautiful after surgery and another friend not minding that I bled all over the seat of her Tesla after my first infusion. It looked like combining great pain with deep pleasure, blurring the lines between friends and lovers and family and living with expansive love on the edge of the Great Plains. Mm. Thank you so much for that, Emily. You gave me goosebumps with that last line, so needed a moment. Um, but thank you so much for such a beautiful story. I can't wait to chat with you about it after our break. Hi, friends. There is now a wildfire book in the world. It is a big, beautiful compilation of my favorite essays from Wildfire Magazine, spanning all the way back to our first ever issue in 2016, up to the summer of 2022. This book took years to create and is literally the resource I wish I had had when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. This book is called Igniting the Fire Within, and it's made up of 50 essays that really dig into the experience of having breast cancer in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. Every stage of breast cancer is represented from DCIS to stage four, from all sorts of walks of life from all around the world. Our writers go deep and get vulnerable to heal their own experiences and to let others like you know that you're not alone you will find yourself within these pages. Get Igniting the Fire Within, stories of healing, hope, and humor inside today's young breast cancer community on Amazon in paperback and for Kindle now. Curl up with it today. This is Miranda Johnson. I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I was diagnosed with stage 2B triple negative breast cancer in October 2018. I finished treatment in 2020. Okay. Thank you so much for the love, Miranda. Really appreciate you. And now I'm turning back to you, Emily. Thank you again for this beautiful story and the vulnerability required to tell it. It was really impactful for me to, to read your story on a personal note. So thank you so much for that. Yes. Thank you. And thanks for publishing it. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we need all the stories. Um, and particularly, I personally feel like we need more sex and intimacy stories after breast cancer diagnosis. Um, I think because, first of all, we don't talk about them enough and it's a quality of life issue. But secondly, because it's this bridge, like you so eloquently said, between pain and pleasure. And I think that that's such a good metaphor for just life, you know, in general. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that or tell us kind of where you're at now. It's been several months now since we, we published this, even more probably since when you wrote it. 
did anything kind of jump out at you um, as you were reading about anything that's maybe different now? Hmm. Um, it's, uh, so I don't, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Um, it was definitely hard rereading it now. I did write it about a month or so after my surgery. I was still recovering at my parents' house or, yeah, and then I revised it not too long after. So it's been a long time. Um, and I'm actually like coming up on a revision surgery next week, which has already been bringing up a lot of uh, memories of like how I felt going into the mastectomy and um, how much like how afraid I was and how much I was grieving. And um, some of that is definitely still present um, every day. Um, but other other parts are like I'm starting to uh, just live in this in my body the way it is now and um, enjoy it and appreciate it and uh, care for it in as many ways as I can. Um, yeah, most of the people that I talk about in this essay are still very much a part of my life, although some of the dynamics of different relationships have shifted and changed as they always do. But yeah, I, I going back to what you were saying right at the beginning of this is I remember when I was thinking about what my surgery options were and what I wanted to do and decided to go to get aesthetic flat closure instead of doing reconstruction. I was looking for stories that would resonate with me and that reflected my own life and I was having a hard time finding them. Um, and so I was finding a lot about women um, reflecting on how cancer and the surgeries and all of that has impacted their marriages and their relationships and partnerships, but I wasn't finding a lot about um, single people and especially uh, sort of queer polyamorous people. <laughs> um, and so I, that was sort of the motivation for writing it is trying to offer that back to this community and try to tell my story in order to maybe make someone else feel a little bit more seen and understand what my experience and journey has been um, and hope to continue, yeah, and to be in conversation with all the other amazing writers in this magazine and elsewhere mm. um, feels really important to me. Yeah, I, I loved everything that you just said. Um, but yeah, finding reflections of your experience, your story is so important. And when we can't find that, I love that your instinct was to put your story out there so that someone else could have that, that um, experience of feeling more whole, you know, in the community. It's funny. Um, I think one of the things I didn't realize about breast cancer before I had it is that no two experience is the same. There's so many different types of breast cancer, so many different um, stages, obviously, but also, you know, personal decisions and personal choices and different surgery options and all those things. And so whenever I see someone that kind of more mirrors my own experience, then I feel seen and heard in this big sea of, of breast cancer. And so I'm really glad that you found the space to be brave and share your story. I know that it is definitely making the world better for someone else. Definitely. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to come back to a part of your story. Um, the, the hair part of your story, which I know is like a sub 
I don't know if it's a subplot, but you know, it's a sub part of your story. But you start with with losing your hair. And then we see you later in the story, um, burying your hair and having some ceremony around that. Could you tell us a little bit more about your decision to do that? And, um, and about that ceremony aspect? Um, sure. So yeah, I had waist length hair before this started. Um, and I, right after my first infusion, I went and actually just got it cut to like chin length and thought I would have that for a few weeks and liked it and went to a wedding and, uh, powered through the first uh, round of side effects, which I, which then just became the thing I continued to do, which is insane. And I'm not positive. I recommend it, but that's how I coped. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I cut it and then about, it only lasted like four or five days before it fell out. My hair fell out really fast. Um, after the first round, which was really hard. <laughs> um, and actually, my the hairdresser who cut my hair, I just told her what was going on, and she ended up not charging me, which was really kind. Um, and yeah, I also was, yeah, like crying while she was cutting it. <laughs> it was the whole thing. But then I was out with friends, um, and yeah, it just started falling out and it fell out really fast too. So it was like early and fast. It only took like a day and it was pretty much all gone, but it was very patchy and like looked horrible. And I was crying <laughs> and called my friend and asked if I could come over and I just wanted to not be alone. And then she was like, I can borrow these clippers. And so she shaved it off for me and that like that was the first time we ever had sex and it was very unexpected. Um, and then it happened a few more times. So, um, but I won't go into too much detail with that, <laughs> but then, yeah, the, so I also at the exact same time as all this, my best friend here, um, who we came into the PhD program together here like nine years ago, um, and have been like extremely close ever since. And she had been diagnosed the previous fall with breast cancer, which is, um, crazy, um, a different kind than me, like what you were just saying, everyone's experience is different. And like, yeah, hers is different. It's not genetic, it's hormone driven. And she was diagnosed um, and on, at first only had to have a, a mastectomy and had reconstruction. And then right after uh, I left or she left to move back to Virginia, she actually had a recurrence and then had to go through chemo. So we sort of took turns with the different steps of treatment um, which is wild. And we've, we've written about that elsewhere together as well. Um, but yeah, so she, I had just found out they were moving to back to Virginia where they're from her and her husband and family. Um, and he had COVID at the time. And so like, I couldn't actually see them really to say goodbye, but, um, camera, I guess she came out to, with me to the prairie to spring Creek Prairie out here. And, um, rode in my car with the windows down and a mask on because I was like, well, I'm immunocompromised now, so I can't really be super risky. Um, but she yeah, came out with me and we went for a walk in our favorite, one of our favorite places here. Um, and yeah, dug a little hole <laughs> and buried the my hair on top of this hill. And it was right at sunset and it was extremely beautiful. Um, and we had spent time together. Neither of us are from Nebraska. We're actually both from the East Coast. So tr being transplants here was intense. But then I totally fell in love with it. And the, that open landscape, the prairie, the, all of that is like has really captured my heart. And so that's why I wanted uh, 
to, I just couldn't bring myself to just throw it away. (laughs) So I brought it out there and um, buried it and found some sage and laid sage over what I've been calling um, like my little hair grave. (laughs) And, uh, and then she, yeah, she actually, we have a whole series of photos. I think I shared one of them of the two of us together that day with you. Um, but I have a whole series where she's like laying her hair over top of my head and <laughs> trying to, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Just be there for each other and like honor the grief of the moment, but also try to find a way, like a, at least one small step towards healing if we could together. Um, and it was a really meaningful moment. Um, was it really hard to say goodbye to her? And then we didn't see each other actually again until this past September, finally, after both of us have been through it all, um, which was a really intense reunion and really, really great. But that was a very long answer to your story or to your question. (laughs) Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Um, I'm thinking about the prairie now and what it means to you. I know here I'm in Northern California and the redwoods are very, um, influential on me and my breast cancer, especially since, um, 2020, we had a forest fire come through. Obviously I called my magazine wildfire with this idea that fire can be clarifying. And now for me watching the redwoods, they didn't die and they're all fuzzed out like these crazy adolescents having this second puberty. It feels very, very, uh, reminiscent of what I'm now experiencing with my body post-cancer. And I'm just wondering, is there, what is it about the prairie that kind of calls to you? And is, do you have your own kind of cancer metaphor in there? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think so. I was actually just talking about this while on a walk in the prairie on Sunday morning. Um, But there's something, because right now it's getting cold and it was sort of raining. And so I had this very like bleak feeling and I was chatting with a friend about, and he asked me like, what? why does that bleakness speak to you? (laughs) And I think there's just, I remember the first time I was out in the sand hills, which are in more Western Nebraska, a little further out West from here. Um, But it's where I go every summer when I teach my summer class. And, um, and that place is extremely meaningful to me. I have a whole other piece in the works right now about that. Um, But there's something about like how, so often people talk about this region as like flyover country, as monotonous, empty, there's nothing out there. It's so flat, boring, all these things, but it really isn't any of those things. And a few actually, but it takes a certain kind of attention and stillness and patience and like, yeah, like, um, yeah, to really understand it. And once you spend time out there, it's really actually an incredibly rich and beautiful bioregion. Um, and yeah, and there's something about, it's like, uh, sort of like my friend was like, it's like something, there's something sublime about it, but not sublime in the way that you think of with mountains. And I think with like redwoods and like cliffs and waterfalls and those things that are huge and enormous and overwhelming, it's instead, cause it's like an horizontal expansiveness that feels really different than any other landscape. Um, and it feels like you can, like, I, I hate to do this, but Willa Cather talks about how she felt like erased or blotted out in that landscape. And she's saying that as being a jarring way she felt when she first 
came here and just was overwhelmed by it all. But I like that phrase because it's like there's something really powerful in that feeling of like smallness within this immense world. Um, and also like in the, this other essay I've been writing, I have a part where I talk about how the sand hills have like these carved paths in them. And I sort of compare them to like the scars on my body and the landscape is always thought of as like flat. And of course now my chest is flat, but I said something about like in my flat, but not flat body and this flat, but not flat landscape and how this whole experience, like in a lot of ways flattened me, but then hasn't. Um, and so just living in that nuance and complexity. And I think the sand hills and the great plains and the prairie all really allow for that richness and feeling of exploration and and yeah and nuance and subtlety and yeah Yeah. oh I love that and yeah to bring it back to your body um as you just said you know I was really thinking about what you said about the kind of the rest of the country thinking that the prairie is like you said flyover country you know it's just flat nothing's going on um, and we know, and I'm half flat, so I can relate to this, um, too, is it's not just, my body is not just flyover country. You know, there is a lot still going on on a flat chest. I can feel my heartbeat in a way that I never could before, you know, now that yeah. I don't have a breast yeah. there, I can see my ribs. Um, so yeah, I love what you just said about there's, there's life here. There's a lot yeah. more going on. Yeah. And honestly, one of my main deciding points for choosing not to do reconstruction was learning that um, most women have no feeling in their chests, no matter which option they choose for reconstruction. And so to me, it just that just, yeah, I was like, why am I doing this then if I'm not going to have any feeling in any way? Um, And it didn't feel like something I was willing. I don't know. I just to me, it didn't feel worth it. I completely understand why people do it. And it's an extreme, it was extremely hard (laughs) and it is extremely hard every day to, um, live flat. But yeah, that was the main reason I, and I was at a music festival this summer when I was, I don't know, maybe eight months out of treatment and met someone who was saying that they're doing reconstruction because they, yeah, she was like, I have a straight boyfriend, so I feel like I have to. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I told her this story about I had started seeing someone new and um, we like had sex for the first time. And he spent a lot of time like touching my chest and making it and like it was just felt really nice. And I commented on it after I was like, I really appreciated like how much time you spent there. And he was like, well, I remember you saying you chose not to do reconstruction because you didn't want to lose feeling. And so I wanted you to feel things there. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Um, And it, yeah. And it's just, I don't know, it was one, it was just such an incredible moment. He's like the most emotionally intelligent person I've ever met in my life. (laughs) Um, That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I was just going to say like, um, it's definitely different. And I definitely like really miss um, that part of my body and how important it was to my sexuality, my identity, my gender, my expression of gender and all of those things. But there is still like... A lot of richness that I can still feel there and um, and it's just new and, and maybe a little different, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. I I love everything that you just said. There was 
you know, kind of two parts of your, or one, one more part of your story, but just, you know, two parts in general to what we've been talking about that I want to hit on before we run out of time. Um, and one was, you know, your story talks so much and so well about the, the role of sex in healing. And one of the parts that I love that you really highlighted was, this um, encounter that you had with a stranger right after you said it was kind of surprising that it would be with a stranger as opposed to someone that knew you before, but that seemed also fitting because you had a new body and a new experience. And then you talked about the rejection after, and I loved what you said about it was actually something normal and not cancery that was happening. Can you talk a little bit more about that or about that rooting maybe that, that you felt at that moment? Yeah, because like I was, you know, disappointed uh, <laughs> that because I, yeah, it felt like a real connection. I think it was. I think it was just the wrong um, time in that person's life. And we've run into each other a few times since then. And, you know, it's perfectly friendly and I wish them well. But, but I was feeling this like sadness and I was sort of surprised at like how hard I was taking it. And of course, I was sort of like, it's all wrapped up in, you know, I'm like, is it because of like, you know, is it too much for someone to take on, like trying to date a cancer survivor, whatever word you want to use? I haven't quite landed on a good one yet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so like I knew it was all wrapped up in that. But then I also had that moment of pause where I was like, wow, I'm sitting here like feeling sad because someone I'm interested in doesn't want to pursue things further, <laughs> which like happens all the time and is like, yeah, just normal. And, and it just felt like I was just kind of relieved that I could feel um, just normal sadness <laughs> over something that, yeah. Um, and that I also was like opening myself up enough to even feel that instead of being overly protective and like be, knowing that I was willing to like be vulnerable in that way again. And um, yeah, and be open to like, love and connection and all of these things. Um, it just felt like hopeful. And yeah, and I try to just like feel <laughs> the feelings. And, and, and historically, I've kind of been really avoidant of that. Um, but like in the recent years, I've been trying to just like allow myself to actually like live in those uh, hard emotions and process them, think through them and um, in a way that I think sometimes might uh, drive people in my life crazy because I just think about things too much almost. But um, yeah, so that answer your question. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say, you know, being a person who thinks about things is perfect for a podcast. So no apologies there for for being introspective and and letting us kind of see inside of your experience. Um, my last question for you, and I you'll have to kind of imagine this a little bit, but you gave us such a good view of of how your polyamorous life played a role in this healing for you. I wonder if there's other ways that um, either you think that it has helped you um, to be poly or if you think that um, – this is the imagining part, If you, how you think it might have been different had you not been or if your healing would have been different. Yeah, uh, I do think about that second question a lot. I did a lot um, when I was going through it all because one thing that I think 
was really hard is that like, and still is hard. I don't have like a go-to person for things. And I often wish that I did, um, which you can obviously, you can definitely still have even like in a polyamorous uh, life and in relationships, but I just don't right now. And I didn't through this whole experience. So I was like sort of spreading out, uh, <laughs> spreading myself out a lot and relying on like a huge network of people, um, which like also in its way is, was really beautiful and meaningful. And um, yeah, but like, yeah, even now, yeah, it can be really lonely, um, <laughs> even though it, I do enjoy, live, like I do genuinely like living alone and um, don't. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> don't necessarily want to change that anytime soon, but it can be hard just kind of being as independent as I am. And I also think people sometimes aren't totally sure like how to um, help when that's the case also. And I wasn't very good at letting people help me or asking for it because I kept just not wanting to be a burden, which also is why I think I had a different person take me to almost every appointment. Cause I was like, okay, so I already tapped them once for this. So I'll, t I'll try to ask someone else and like not overburden any one person too much, uh, which is a really weird way to <laughs> manage relationships, especially when you're like ill. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think also, one thing I was trying to convey in this story is like this sense of like um, franticness that I had in my life through treatment, especially through chemo. And I was just sort of like going top speed and sprinting through things and like then just sort of meeting people wherever I could or happened to be meeting them. Um, and like forming like one of my very good friends now, we basically only met once I was sick and then he was a really important partner for a long time. Um, and now we're just like very close friends and sort of transitioned in our relationship. But, uh, but like he was sort of there to just like kind of do a lot of these and crazy things like go to music festivals and go on this trip and like go out dancing and all of this stuff. Um, but it was also like so much of that, that pace that I was keeping was also like clearly driven by panic. Um, and like, I don't know. Like I also mentioned in the essay that my mom had died um, and she died of breast cancer. She was diagnosed at the same age that I was when I was diagnosed. So there was always that in the back of my mind, even though I had a really different diagnosis and prognosis and everything um, and different treatment approach. And, and but yeah, so but I was just like, well, this is the end <laughs> was sort of where my brain was for a lot of it. And um and yeah, so I sort of just dove headfirst into being really open to all kinds of different relationships and embracing um, how meaningful they can be, even in these fleeting moments. Um, and it, yeah, which is like now that I'm uh, not sick anymore, <laughs> uh, I like am still I am trying to like slow down and actually live a more calm life, <laughs> but I am still trying to be open in those ways that I sort of learned how to be and how to, and yeah, I learned how meaningful that way of being in the world could be while I was sick um, and trying to like keep that vulnerability and that openness and that, um, yeah, that sense of like 
holding on to the moments that I do have, because of course, you know, I mean, I don't mean this to be more morbid, but all of us have a limited amount of time. And mm-hmm. it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have to face that and think about that. And it does kind of change how the moments we do have can feel <laughs> to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is so interesting. Um, you know, what you said about not wanting to be a burden and, you know, overtaxing those relationships in your life, that really um, resonates for me. And it's interesting that that you spread it out, you know, and you, like you said, you were trying not to ask, you know, the same person too much um, and space it out. And it's interesting. I, I find that sometimes the flip side of that is that people who you know, have a significant other, I think that that significant other has to do everything and it's only appropriate for them to do everything. And we tend to only hear the stories of when those people are able to step up and somehow be superhuman caregivers. But we need more stories where people do have to learn to ask others. And, and like the one that you're telling now is like learning that you can ask again, you can depend on, on your community to step up more. And it's, um, we don't have to protect them from, from caring for us, you know? Right. And that's a message I got over and over from so many people. They're like, we, when I say like, what can I do? I literally mean it. And I really want to do something that will be helpful to you. I I was told that by coworkers, by people like at work that I don't even know very well, as much as by my family and my friends. And yeah, like, yeah. And uh, people are incredibly generous and amazing. Um, and I'm so grateful. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, I feel like we could talk all afternoon about this, Emily, but we should probably wrap it up. We are at the end of our time, but I want to know, can people find you online and follow you if they are resonating with everything you're sharing today? I'm sure. Yes. Uh, I am on Instagram, I guess. My account is private, but um, yeah, I am open to accepting follow requests. <laughs> um, okay, so what is your handle? Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> it's just at E-J-R-A-U. So E-J Rao. Perfect. We will link to you in the show notes. Thank you for that. Yeah. For everyone listening, you have been listening to Emily Rao. She wrote a story called I Might Be In Love With All My Friends. And you can find that and pictures of Emily in the issue. It was the Love and Intimacy issue from 2023, Wildfire Magazine. Thanks again, Emily. So appreciate you. And I can't wait to read the the next piece that you're working on. Thanks for letting us know about that too. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And also for uh, the writing retreat I attended at the beginning of this year, which actually helped was a helped me like begin a first draft of this essay. So thank you for that as well. <laughs> oh, I love to hear that. That's our healing arts retreat. Yes, with that idea of connecting with the body. I'm so glad that you mentioned that and I'm glad that that helped you. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young people like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. 
Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. If you want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories, please head to wildfirecommunity.org. You can find the issue shared in today's episode. You can find our archives there, and you can take a writing workshop or retreat with me. There's no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And if you got value out of today's conversation, please share this with your friends and family. If you share it on social, you can tag me, Wildfire BC Community, and you can tag Emily as well, EJ Rao. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. All right, here is your writing prompt. I want you to set your timer for eight minutes, write without stopping or editing. The prompt is intimacy now looks like. Intimacy now looks like. Write for eight minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it will take you. And if you find that you write best with a good writing prompt, I've got tons for you over at wildfirecommunity.org free. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.